This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, January the 6th. 2023, a day that will live in infamy, a day when the nation was, well, nothing really happened. A guy with assless chaps sat on Nancy Pelosi's chair. Uh, That's not what we're going to talk about today at all. No, it is Friday, Friday, Friday. It is time for an expert council Q&A show, and I have got a good one lined up for you. I have got a huge, huge amount of content, total huge amount of variety for you today. Ron Paul in the Liberty Highlights. This one actually is uh, from right before Christmas, but it's still as relevant as ever today. Uh, Chris Rossini. It uh, seems to be going around. like with the COVID is going around killing everybody. Well, apparently, computer death is going around. Uh, I had two computers die in November and early December. Chris Rossini, who puts together the Ron Paul segments for us, part of the team over there, uh, had a computer die this week. He's like, I don't have one for you this week. I'm sorry. I'm like, it's okay, man. Worry about getting your life back together after losing a machine. And uh, I've got one in the in, in the can, so to speak, because I didn't do uh, expert counsel that week. So Dr. Paul is going to tell us why we should get rid of the FBI. And I completely agree. Dan McAdams will talk about how the FBI gave Twitter $3.5 million freaking dollars to do its bidding. That kind of is like, that's also why we should get rid of the FBI. Chris Rossini and Philip Patrick will tell us how if the Fed hits its targets or misses its targets regarding inflation, it doesn't matter. Uh, the die is cast, and I agree with that. Sean Mills is back. I haven't heard from Sean for a while. Sean will talk about a rebrand of his website, and I'll let him tell you about that. And I'll just say, this is why you listen to Jack about website things. And if I knew what he was really planning, I would have actually told him to do what he had to do because of what happened back when he told me he wanted to do it, and I said, don't do that thing, do this other thing. So anyway, but he's back and on the attack talking to us about battery tech and prices and e-bike charging using city facilities in a way that... Maybe you shouldn't, but it might be good to know you could. Uh, Doc Bones will talk about what's Doc talking about? Uh, what's the deal with Paxlovid, and what's about to happen to the cost and supply, and, and how does this affect vaccines for the COVID as well? I know that most of us won't be getting one of those shots. I know Doc won't either after the experience Nurse Amy had with her first. Uh, try at the stab. We're not going to ever do it again. Uh, but this is a thing that we need to know about what's going on there. And uh, I'll throw a few jabs at Pfizer, Moderna, Paxlovid, and all this garbage myself when we get to that one. Tim Toolman Cook. We'll talk about Pex B and Pex A. And what works universally and what doesn't and what's the difference. When he explains this, it's going to sound a little confusing, and if you're driving or something, it it may be. If you listen to it, he does the best job I've ever heard anybody do explaining the confusion between PEX-B and PEX-A. The only thing he didn't explain, and I don't understand why myself, if PEX-B is the more common one that's been around forever and PEX-A is the new one, why is PEX-B PEX-B? I don't know. 
But I do know the difference now, thanks to Tim. Uh, we also have the four most common questions that our, uh, our pocket Nick uh, plant advisor, Nick Ferguson, gets, along with some information about his plant cell, which is now live. Uh, John Pugliano, a paranoia versus preparedness when it comes to investing, economics, and a coming recession. Nicole Sauce, remodeling without losing your math and mind. Yep, good advice from her. I have a little throw-in on that one, too, because I've been through this few times myself. And I'm going to tell you why we need to stop making everything bad that happens to people like Damar Hamlin uh, about the vaccine, the COVID vaccine. You know that no one is more like, I really don't think you should do this than me. There is probably no one that is more opposed to any sort of mandates than me. You will never, ever, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, 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 never get me to take this experimental DNA-altering crap. But it does not kill everybody that gets it. It doesn't. It's not going to. I do think it's probably weakened the immune system of everybody that's ever gotten it. Seriously. I think the side effects are huge. But I think DeMar Hamlin got hit by another player on a tackle and had a rare cardiac event occur. And I think it's possible that maybe, having been vaccinated, might have played a role. But I don't think that we can jump to that. I think everybody talking about it doesn't know shit. You can't know shit. And I'm going to tell you why even if this is an example of a vaccine reaction, which it most likely, in my opinion, 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 not a claim of fact, but most likely, in my opinion, is not But even if I'm wrong about that, why the approach that people are taking on the alternative side of the issue right now is stupid and why we shouldn't do it and how it hurts all of us. Because, well, that's what I do. I tell you the truth, even when it's a truth that you do not wish to hear. And before we jump in and hear from the experts, I want to throw out just a simple reminder about the event that's going on from January 18th to the 22nd in Bastrop, Texas. It's called The Greater Reset, and it is The Greater Reset 4. This will be the fourth time John Bush has hosted this. The first year it was virtual, and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and this year it's going to be huge. You can come down there. It's really inexpensive to attend when you look at what you get. There's VIP ticket options as well. You might want to consider those. You will get to hear from and meet speakers like myself, John Bush, uh, Texas Slim, Mark Moss, who's an amazing guy, Zuby, the very famous rapper and uh, very... The word I would use for him is he's a critical thinker. He's an incredibly intelligent man, uh, and I am really looking forward to uh, meeting him. I'm hoping like to get to meet him and talk to him enough to rope him in to be on an episode of the Survival Podcast. And I, Because he's also a Bitcoiner. It'll probably be a Bitcoin breakout episode, but it probably won't be focused just on Bitcoin. But then, yesterday I found out, and I told you guys yesterday about this, J.P. Sears is going to be there as well. So Zuby and JP are going to perform Saturday night. I don't even know if I'm going to be there Saturday night. It depends on the weather because I don't want to live my wife here to deal with bad weather while I'm gone. So 
If I miss that, that's going to suck. But you don't have to. You can come and you can learn all about this. I do have an affiliate link with John. So if you would use my link to sign up, go to the Survival Podcast, scroll down till you see information about the event, click on that, or use the link in the Daily Mail or you know anything I've put out on social media. If you if you if you don't, I'll get over it. But I would appreciate. It's easy way to. You're going to do it anyway. Use my link. All right. With that, let's go ahead and hear from Doctor Paul. And his group over there talking about, again, getting rid of the FBI, the FBI bribing Twitter and the Fed. And if they hit or miss their inflation targets, it doesn't even mean a damn thing. Here we go. <clears throat> I want to talk a minute about uh, the whole principle of uh, the First Amendment and corporations because <clears throat> a, lot of, a lot of people still are confused that they're private and therefore they can do these things. Uh, but <clears throat> Jonathan Turley is very good in pointing out, and we have pointed this out as well, is there's a big difference between being a private company or a private organization and you voice an opinion. Uh, compared to getting all your orders from the government. And I think what we've demonstrated here today is that's the real crime here. They've been getting orders uh, from the uh, government and threats and innuendos, economic benefits, economic pain and suffering. So that is absolutely, totally different. And I think what has happened is along the way, uh, it, it, it took many, many decades, especially since uh, the 30s, that the, um, the, the principle of private property ownership has become blurred. Most people realize that there's a so-called separation of church and state, that if you have a church uh, and you're teaching a certain religion, that Nobody has a right to walk into your church and say, I want equal time, get away, i got to give my speech. Everybody knows that's, that's wrong. I, I just don't consider those concepts that complicated. That's why, on the bottom line, I, I, I work very hard at being optimistic because it's a horrible mess that we've allowed ourselves to get into, whether it's the, the, the national debt, the ruination of our monetary system, a foreign policy that has uh, made us commit to m maintaining an empire around the world. I mean, uh, and what they've done to the medical system. Uh, how could that be easily solved? It can be. Understanding the principles of personal liberties, having a very, very limited government, and one of my suggestions has been that if you get a little bit annoyed what the FBI was doing to us, uh, maybe, uh, you know, my suggestion is why don't we just get rid of the FBI and see what happens then. I don't think we sh will be less safe. I'll tell you, I don't think that for a minute. This came out this morning on the Daily Mail, Dr. Paul. It just came out before we went on. But we found out this yesterday because there was another Twitter, Twitter files drop. The FBI paid Twitter $3.5 million to do its bidding. Taxpayers' money was used to suppress Hunter Biden laptop story and process the agency's request to silence GOP voices as fury mounts over the secret state censorship of the American people. In a, in a nutshell, Dr. Paul, and this came out, and you can even put the next one on, because this is the actual uh, tweet from the Twitter files, uh, Michael Schellenberger, who, put, who released this part of it. This is an email uh, to Jim Baker, who was a top guy in the FBI, and then became a top guy in Twitter. And I'll just put it, I'll just summarize it, Dr. Paul. The FBI paid Twitter at least $3 million to censor voices that the U.S. government did not think belonged on Twitter. Uh, it is an unbelievable scandal 
criminal act that should be prosecuted. And it raises the question, how much are they paying Facebook? How much are they paying Google? How much are paying LinkedIn? All the other groups. It's a massive scandal. Nobody cares about it. They only want to know, where's the FBI going to settle next? Yeah, you know, this is so obvious that you should call the police. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's the FBI. They are the police. <laughs> Who do we call now? <laughs> yes, Philip, great to see you again. Um, Thank you, I wanted to talk about inflation targets because it's so ridiculous. Even that uh, the idea that targets exist. I mean, nobody gave the Fed any taxing authority over us, whereas they want to steal 2% of our purchasing power, as a matter of fact. You know, and that was for years. Oh, we want to get 2%, 2%. Then it shot up to, it's probably 15% now. Correct. Uh, and now they're just talking about, oh, we just need new targets, new higher targets. I mean... <laughs> So I thought of an analogy. What if the government, you know, and we believe that the income tax itself is theft. You know, so if we pay 35% income tax and one day they just take 75%, would we just accept, oh, sorry, we, we overshot this year. Uh, we'll, we'll try to bring it down to 50. I mean, can you just talk about this whole charade called inflation targets? I mean, it's absurd, right? Particularly when you can just move the goalposts. It's like me not achieving our company's targets and saying, well, let's just lower the target. That way we achieve it. It's nonsensical. Look, the Fed, is, as you know well, have a dual mandate to maintain maximum employment and that 2% target. For me, it's not going to be achievable for the foreseeable future. I think the, the Fed are really pinned into a corner here. They can raise rates, and they, I think next year when the reality that they really haven't got a grip on inflation kicks in, they're going to have to get more aggressive with the raising of interest rates. But the problem, as we've discussed before, I don't know how aggressive they can, and it has a significant effect on the federal government. Let's not forget, with 30 win, uh, $31 trillion in debt, every time the interest rate goes up, percent that adds 310 billion dollars in in, in in debt service that alone accounts for a massive category of government spending I don't think they're going to be able to raise rates enough to really slow the inflation and I think the two percent target is a pipe dream for a long long time a lot to unpack in that so I'm just gonna stick just to the Twitter files, which I haven't covered because I think it doesn't matter, and I think that's why I want to talk about it because I want to drive home the point to you about how screwed up it is that it doesn't that they don't matter. And I don't mean that they don't matter in the grand scheme of the universe. I mean they don't matter in the place where you thought you were having a debate for the past three or four years. So the stuff that some of the stuff that Dr. Paul's talking about and Dan were talking about has come out in what's been known as the Twitter files. I think we're up to our seventh dump since Elon started dumping this through various um, uh, journalists, Matt Tebby, and there's some other one or two others that he's like kind of rotating and letting them take turns putting out all this information. Now, this isn't speculation. This is not subjective. This is not opinion. What's coming out is actual documented conclusive evidence that shows collusion between the United States government and Twitter to do things like bribe the FBI, to ban accounts, to suppress evidence, suppress information, to control the flow of speech. And literally everything and more that was, that, 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 that people like us have accused Twitter and the government of doing has been validated. Okay? 
And so this, again, this, this segment from Dr. Paul was sent to me on the 21st of December, so uh, what, three weeks ago. There's been at least two more dumps since then, so this was about the fifth dump, I guess, is, is where we would be with this. I have seen nothing really about it on any of the major media outlets at all. This isn't the story of the decade. It is the stories of the decade. It is the story, if, if, and, and the media is so in the tank for the left that if what was going on right now happened under the guidance and control of a right-wing government, they wouldn't talk about anything else. But here's the bigger thing. And when I said this on social media, a few people said, well, this person says it. They found like one person. Like When I said I haven't heard it from one, I meant one person in the mainstream media, and I haven't. Like, you would think, but I haven't heard it from anybody on the left in the general population going, holy shit, you guys were right. Holy shit, this is effed up. No, you can't. And this is what I'm telling you. All the things that are coming out, they already knew. They already knew. They absolutely 100% already knew what was happening. They don't care. What did I say? What did I say earlier this week? Politics is a game designed by psychopaths, run by sociopaths, and played by idiots. We're in this on our own. We are not the silent majority. We are not the majority of anything. We are large in number. We are legion in number, but we are outnumbered. And I'm, you know what I mean when I say we here if you're a long-term listener. I'm not like, you know, the GOP and us. No, 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 no. Those scumbags... They're all in league with this. They're all in league with this. Why do you think your orange man hero has come out and said, you guys need to vote for Kevin McCarthy for speaker? Right? You, this is all pantomime. This is all a gimmick. This is all a game. And the majority of people don't know and or don't care. They don't care that people have been killed. They don't care that the voices of doctors and scientists, legitimate doctors and scientists, who are not playing the game that they're told to play, have been silenced. They don't care that the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world bribed a social media corporation to do it. They don't care, but this is the most important piece of this that you must understand. They are never going to care. We... Though we are legion, are the minority, and we are on our own. It is up to us to build our own world, our own economies, our own systems, and to basically tell them to go screw themselves. And to do so in a forceful but peaceful way, at a point of enough numbers, that they have to do what we have to do. We have to accept that that's what they are, that that's what they want to be, and realize we cannot move them. We also need to be unmovable. We need to be too big and too powerful to be moved, even if we're outnumbered. Because I'll tell you, the one thing we have going for us, the one thing we have going for us, even though we're less in number, we're the productive people. We're the productive people. We're people that do shit and get shit done. And they can't make it without us. They can't. Even back when I was in corporate America and I had to be a dick for a living, I had to be an asshole for a living, there was times when I would come home and I would tell my wife about my day because they ask. I'd be like, you're better off if you did, but they do. And you're like, man, I can't believe you do that. And you're like that with people. Like, you know, you're a better person than me, but people like me are the reason that your world can exist. That's, there, there's some truth in that too. But th they live off 
productivity even though they don't produce anything. And the people that don't produce outnumber the producers, period. But they need us. They need us, and if we're strong, and if we act like we should, which means thinking before we speak, speaking clearly and plainly, and saying F no. I don't think I'm going to let you do that to me today. Then eventually, the best we can hope for is a tenuous peace for a time. I know that's not what you want to hear, but I don't tell you what you want to hear. But you want to hear this. Sean Mills is back and on the attack, talking to you about battery tech, e-bike charging, and a rebrand of his website. Hey, and Happy New Year, Jack and the TSP community. This is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com. Yes, you heard that right, HackMyHomestead.com. I did not listen to Jack last year and shut down the Hack My Solar website, which eventually led to me losing the domain and forcing me to accelerate the plan to transition over to Hack My Homestead uh, by about two years, I think. However, um, we're rolling with the punches. Uh, the long version of that story is on the website, and uh, we're just going to kind of go through a little bit of a reboot, rebrand, um, which after... 2022, uh, for me personally and professionally, that's actually a good thing. Uh, well, so with no further ado, I do have a couple questions and then one thing I wanted to mention to everyone. The first question was about a, um, kind of, uh, rigged together version of an e-bike charger, uh, that you could utilize the city's, um, charging stations. Uh, I think this was in Chicago to charge your e-bike from a car charger. And so I will say that while that's definitely not my area of expertise, theoretically it will work just because the charger is capable of a higher amperage output than the system can take. As long as the voltages match, uh, it's actually not a problem. You're not going to have extra voltage or rather extra amperage going through into the e-bike um, just because the charger is capable of doing so. Uh, and a, and a good example of that would be you've got these superchargers out there uh, for Teslas, but uh, you can actually charge your Tesla at a couple different speeds uh, from those superchargers. So while I would not use it and I would not condone using it, theoretically, it will work. And that was from John in Moore Park. I got another question about uh, just kind of a general question about what's going on with batteries. I said last year that with Tesla moving to the lithium iron phosphate uh, battery technology, that that chemistry may start to get um, more expensive and or supply chains might start to dry up. Um, and while I did say that, I also said that they would probably get cheaper and more abundant first. And so what we are seeing right now is um, particularly the server rack style uh, batteries, which are using the prismatic cells. Those are really starting to hit the market. There's about five different versions out there that are commercially viable right now. Um, I think they're all being made in about two factories because it really looks like there's kind of two styles and they're being branded uh, based on who's importing them. But they're coming with a 10-year warranty, you know, seven to 8,000 cycles, 
uh, is what they're rated for. And as long as you're not taking that thing down to 80% depth of discharge every single day, um, you're going to get a lot more cycles than that out of them. So realistically, you're talking about a 20-year battery as long as you don't mess up and try to charge it when it's uh, below 32 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. So what I'm seeing is, um, you know, the prices haven't really moved. So everything else got more expensive last year. Um, and those batteries are more abundant. You can get them from more places, uh, which means that occasionally you'll get a really good deal on one. And, um, you know, the prices stayed pretty flat. The other style lithium iron phosphate, which is kind of the dumber battery that does not have the built-in battery management system, those prices really haven't changed on those either. So um, I will say that I think that the tech, or rather the chip uh, shortage that's impacted the whole tech industry and particularly the auto industry as it relates to new uh, higher-end cars, I think that's starting to get resolved. Um, I think that we might have another year before that's fully resolved. And at that point, you're really going to start to see a lot of the lithium iron phosphate technology on the road in the form of electric vehicles. And so we'll see what happens with the supply chain there. Again, I think we could see things become more available and cheaper before they become less available and more expensive due to supply and demand. Now, the other thing that I will say is uh, solar panels. It's been a bit of a weird year this year for solar panels. Uh, there was a period of time where it was kind of tough to find a good deal. And then, you know, a month later, it looked like there was good deals all over the place. And then a month after that, you couldn't find anything anymore. Uh, I think we're going to start to see a lot of really cheap uh, modules hit the market in 2023. Um, a lot of the input prices have gone way down. And so I think that you've got a lot of uh, pent-up manufacturing capacity uh, that is now going to be applied to lower input costs. And I think you're going to end up seeing the result of that in kind of a flood of panels hitting the U.S. market, uh, more so the European market, just because a lot of those panels are coming out of China. And we don't, you know, allegedly we aren't bringing uh, Chinese panels in right now, or if they are, there are big tariffs on them. But I do think that you're going to see a kind of global trickle down effect there on the solar panels. And, you know, I think right now it's, it's not hard to find something in the 50 cent per watt range, um, per watt range brand new or lower. And now we've got that 30% solar investment tax credit that we can apply and just close with one quick thing. Um, guys, if you don't have an alternative to electric heat, you have to get one. We've seen two substation attacks that have impacted tens of thousands of people each in a pretty cold time of year. And we've got several more months of winter. So uh, I think that now that it's warmed up a bit, some of those things that might be easier to find, whether it's just a excess of uh, propane with a propane heater or kerosene or diesel heater or, you know, wood stoves or pellet uh, stoves, you got to have something other than the electric heat. Too many people were suffering in North Carolina and Washington state when some idiots went out there and ran about $20 worth of ammunition into a substation and some, some transformers that, by the way, cost about three to $5 million uh, to fix. Both of those events did. So with that being said, 
Um, I'm signing off for today. Keep those questions coming in. I'll keep answering and getting them back to you. Thanks. Good stuff from Sean. I'm glad he's back. He says he's going to be on it hard, and I'm looking forward to hearing stuff from Sean a couple times, three times a month. Here's my advice, though, on the whole thing. One, when he let that website go down, I didn't know it was because he planned to have a new domain in the future or something like that. All right, here's my advice to you. If you have a website that has any traffic at all and any time in, in play at all, I, you can get cheaper hosting. You get the cheapest hosting there is. Never let a website go down Ever, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, 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 never, never, ever, never, 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 ever, never. If you do, you hate money, and you deserve the financial loss that it will cost you in your life times ten. Never, ever, never, ever, never, including you, Sean, but you've learned now, okay? And you don't do it because, well, you'll lose the domain. That's because you didn't pay the renewal fee, okay? That's why you lost the domain. Those are two different things. Website hosting is so cheap that there is no excuse for taking down a website. I've only met a few people in my life that insist on doing this. I'm surprised Sean did it. One of my others was one of my best friends, a dude named Hal Dodd. It made no sense to me whatsoever. It still doesn't. And Hal was still paying his hosting fee but took down the site because he didn't like it anymore. No. If you plan on rebranding to a new site... Leave the old site the hell alone and link to your new site. Put information about your new site on it, but let your old site suck up all the beautiful links, all the SEO, all the domain listings. Put up your new site, push over power, but have two presences instead of one because website hosting is cheap. And even the super cheap uh, uh, web hosting plants usually let you host two, three, four, or five domains. So don't ever take a website down. Ever. Unless, like, you really don't want it there anymore. Not because you don't like it or you don't feel... Like, you're like, I don't want to do this at all. And nothing I do in the future is going to have anything to do with this anymore. Oh, okay. I get that. But, like, you go from hack my solar to hack my homestead. No. Anyway, moving on. Pex. What is Pex. Well, if you don't know, Tim will tell you. What's PEX A and PEX B? You'll understand that perfectly if you follow this that he's about to give you. If you don't, you might want to rewind and listen to it twice. But it, best explanation I've ever heard. But could somebody tell me why if PEX B is the old PEX that's been around forever and PEX A is the newer stuff, why is PEX B PEX B? I don't know. Anyway, with that, Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. The question is, are most brands of PEX-B tubing compatible with PEX-A expansion tool system, or is it just the Zern brand that is universal? Details. All the PEX tubing at my local Home Depot is Apollo brand PEX-B. But even though the store doesn't stock any tubing labeled as PEX-A, it does sell PEX-A fittings and expansion tools. According to the Zern Brands website, their PEX tubing is universal and can be used with either crimp or expansion fittings. Hopefully, you can clear up the confusion. Thanks, Paul. Okay, so PEX fittings, PEX pipe, can be 
confusing, can be as clear as mud. But let's start out with what does PEC stand for? PEC stands for polyethylene and the X stands for crossed link pipe. Basically that flexible white, blue, or red pipe that you see typically in coils, but it does come in straight lengths as well. It has become almost all plumbers go to. Most new houses are plumbed in PEX pipe. However, the confusion comes in. There are really two ways, two types of PEX pipe that we can deal with. So the standard one, the one that's been around for a long time, the one that DIYers use and the one that is at almost all big box stores is PEX B. So let's compare PEX B with PEX A. So PEX B is the crimping style PEX. It's where you put a fitting inside the pipe and then you crimp down a ring on the outside. PEX A is the newer style that you see making kind of inroads because it is very reliable and it is the expanding style. So you put a ring, a plastic ring around the outside, then you put a graduated kind of cone tool on the inside. You expand out the pipe, put it on the fitting, and then it expands or contracts back down to its regular size. So here's the thing. So PEX A is compatible with both systems. So if you buy the PEX pipe that is designed for expansion, you can also use the crimp fittings on it. However, PEX B, and I don't want to make this too complicated, but PEX B is the stuff you're going to find at all your big box stores. PEX B is not compatible with the expanding tool. So that's where the confusion comes in. So PEX A is more expensive, but it is universal. You can expand it or you can use the crimp fittings with it. Whereas the standard older style PEX B pipe can only be used with the crimping tool. So let's compare. PEX A, it requires a special expanding tool. You can get a manual one, but it's still about twice as much as an inexpensive crimping tool. PEX A, if it gets kinked, you can heat it up and it will return to its original shape. PEX A costs about 50% more than PEX B. It's way more durable, and it has a burst rate of up to 500 PSI, which makes it great for freezing environments. PEX-A works better in tight spaces because you can expand the pipe away from where you need to make your fitting and then just push it on and allow it to contract back. Whereas PEX-B, you need to have those big crimpers in a tight space. PEX-A, you can never dry fit it and just leave it there because in order to fit it, you need to expand it, put it into place, and then it contracts. You know, if you can see the pipe onto the fitting, it is a good connection. Whereas PEX B, you pop it on with the ring, and on occasion, if you're in a hurry, you might forget to crimp it. So there's that as well. Now, the other cool thing about PEX A, the expanding stuff, is there's no flow restriction. So what you're doing with the expandable is you're expanding it beyond the original size and then letting it contract back to the full half inch or three quarter inch inside diameter. Whereas PEX B, the standard stuff, you're putting a fitting inside the pipe and then clamping onto that, which means you are causing flow restriction, which means a good rule of thumb is to increase or upsize your pipe one so that you don't end up reducing your flow too much. PEXB is, like I said, about 50% cheaper. The tools are cheaper. You can use the Shark Bite slip-on fittings on both as well. 
So, if you're not sure, it should be labeled. Look on it and see PEX B or PEX A. If you're not sure, assume it's PEX B. That way, you are not going to have a bad day when you try to expand PEX B and it snaps on you or fails or whatever. So, that's the rule of thumb. If, if you're looking at that special Zern brand, really all that is is just a rebranded PEX A pipe, which means it's compatible with both systems. So, I hope that helps. Typically, if you want PEX A pipe, you're going to need to order it or special order it at a big box store. So I hope that clarifies a bit. PEX B is the stuff that's on the shelf. You crimp it. PEX A is the stuff you tend to special order. It's backwards compatible. It costs more, but you use the expansion tool. So I hope that helps, guys. Hope that uh, made it more than clear as mud. <laughs> so if you want to know what I'm up to, guys, run by, check out the workshop podcast three days a week, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, live, 7 p.m. on YouTube, TikTok, <laughs> Telegram, Twitch, Odyssey, Float, all of the places. And if you want to support what I'm up to, run by patchofthemonth.co and subscribe to the monthly patch club. I'm excited. It is growing by leaps and bounds. And guys, thanks for sending me all of these questions. I love answering them for you. Keep sending them to Jack and I will keep putting them together for you. Challenge me. Send me all kinds of things, whether it's to do with heating systems or backup power, starting your own business, whatever it happens to be, send them by. I'll get them answered for you. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. I get it. It's not clear as mud. It's as clear as vodka. You don't get anything more clear than vodka, man. Vodka's clear as it gets. Uh, I, 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 maybe somebody could tell me. Maybe, Tim. I, how is PEX B, PEX B if it came? So why would B come before A? I, if it was opposite land... Would it be Z and Y and go that? I don't know. I don't get it. Not important, though. Uh, and next up, Doc Bones with some information on Paxlovid and the COVIDs and vaccines and when when the government won't be paying for everything anymore. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. In the battle to prevent severe cases of COVID, the oral medication Paxlovid has become the standard treatment, with nearly 6 million courses of therapy given in the U.S. Until now, this drug has been free to patients as the government has sprung for the costs. In a few months, however, that won't be the case, leaving those who are at most risk for a major illness, the elderly and the uninsured, having to pay a substantial price, currently more than $500. Although the pandemic seems to have abated in the United States, the number of daily worldwide cases of COVID as of November 22, 2022 are about the same as the same date two years earlier. With the approaching winter, some are concerned about a possible resurgence in cases. Death rates from COVID remain at about 1%, more in the senior population. Many billions of dollars have been spent on, sometimes hastily, developed options to treat or at least mitigate the effects of COVID. Paxlovid, a combination of two drugs, is credited with a decrease in hospitalizations and deaths from the virus. The Department of Health and Human Services, however, will soon stop supplying free treatments, forcing pharmacies to buy and bill for them on the market just as they do other meds. This will, by the way, also affect COVID vaccines, which will go from about 30 bucks to about 120 
Close to 90% of those dying from COVID are 65 or older, the age where Medicare covers many medical costs. Unfortunately, Medicare Part D would be restricted from covering the costs of Paxlovid. It's only available now due to an FDA emergency use authorization. Until the FDA gives full approval to the drug, it won't be covered for the people most at risk. A government approval for an additional $2.5 billion is in the works, but there's no guarantee funds will be available to continue the free program. Many citizens are already facing difficulties getting Paxlovid prescriptions. There is a procedure by which a COVID-positive patient can obtain it directly from the pharmacy with proof of a recent normal liver and kidney function test. Even if you have health insurance, their paying for COVID therapy is not a guaranteed thing. Eventually, I expect they'll figure out that the medicine is less expensive than a hospital stay, but it may take months to make that decision. At the very least, expect higher copays. One bit of good news is that those on public health insurance plans for low-income populations like Medicaid will have Paxlovid covered until at least 2024. Also, the government has only used a third of the 20 million doses it purchased from Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. It's hoped that these surplus doses will be made available, if not for free, then for a substantial discount. Clearly, when faced with a potentially large medical bill, many patients will forego getting the medicine, which could lead to bad outcomes. The government and even private insurers would be remiss in not making sure that Paxlovid and other COVID treatments are affordable. Perhaps they should review the data on the effectiveness of more affordable treatments like ivermectin that aren't currently FDA approved, but suggested by the Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance, of which I'm an advocate. Bottom line is, let's face it, any oral medication is far less expensive than two weeks in the intensive care unit. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about respiratory infections and 200 other off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. You know, it's it's too bad there's not a safe, cheap, effective medication that's largely sold over-the-counter throughout like 80% of the countries in the world that's been shown to be highly effective in the treatment of COVID when given to high-at-risk patients early, like, oh, I don't know, hydroxychloroquine in combination with zinc and secondary infection-preventing antibiotics, like a, like azithromycin. I, I, I wish that we... It's just... You know, they worked so hard, they spent all their trillions of dollars and stole your money and inflated the economy, caused one of the biggest recessions that's on the way to ever happen, screwed up the supply chain, screwed up a generation, and it all could have been avoided if only we would have had something like that or maybe another highly effective, also available over-the-counter throughout most of the world uh, treatment that's probably actually better than the first one, which would be ivermectin. But since neither of those exist, and both of them are made of, like, like one is for cleaning fish tanks and the other is horse paste, then they'll kill you dead if you look at them. If you touch the box, you, 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 go, you run the risk of going into anaphylactic shock and, and having a lizard crawl out of your ass, right? because nobody would ever use those unless they were in a hospital uh, in, a, in a random controlled trial under the, the, the supervision of highly trained doctors. You know, there's no way those would work. Yeah. That's all I can say about that so I don't lose my shit and have a freaking aneurysm because all of this makes me sick. All of this makes me sick. Oh, and here's one more thing before we go on. I have yet to hear from anybody defending this thing they call a vaccine, which is not a vaccine. 
who can give me an explanation, a logical explanation of how it is a vaccine. If the government first had to change the definition of what had been a vaccine for 70 to 100 years to call it a vaccine. Now they did that. I'm not making that up. They did that. I'm not making it up. They changed the definition of vaccine so they could call it a vaccine so they could indemnify and protect the manufacturers and mandate it. But they had to change the definition first. You want to defend this thing. I don't even care whether you want to. I don't even want to argue about whether it works or not. I don't want to argue about whether it's dangerous or not. I'm telling you it's not a vaccine because something doesn't match a definition if you have to change a definition prior to introducing it to make it match the definition. This is this is is ridiculous is saying that a woman is any human who identifies as a woman. You, you that's changing the words. It's 1984 for the preservation of my blood pressure and my brain. Let us move on and talk about something better. How about plants? Nick Ferguson with the four questions he gets the most often, some stuff about consulting, his new plant sale, all kinds of good shit. Let's bring my blood pressure back down to a nice healthy level. Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with another expert counsel answer for several listeners this time and since time is of the essence on this one, I figured I'd answer a bunch of people all at once. I'm in the middle of rareplantstore.com tree package sales right now. They started a um, couple days before the first for you early birds who follow me on my Telegram channel. You all got first dibs at it. Um, and actually Before I could even get everything updated, a couple people who are apparently super fans were clicking refresh on the webpage days in advance and got a couple um, quick early bird sales put in before I was even ready putting in all the information. So uh, right now I'm being flooded with emails about this topic, so I figured I'd just answer these common questions that have been sent in over the past few days, and I'll read them all off and answer accordingly. First... When can I get on a consulting tour? Well, I'm planning a likely tour either in Texas or up through Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, Arkansas, that kind of region in February. So if you wanted to get on a consulting tour, shoot me an email with consulting in the, sub in the subject line to nick at homegrownliberty.com and I'll put you on the notification list to see if the timing will work out. Um, because, you know, people's work schedules sometimes don't coincide perfectly. Uh, otherwise, I'll put you on my waiting list. Um, all right, second question. Hey, Nick, when are you shipping out tree orders this year? Well, um, <clears throat> same as every year, we expect to start shipments to the most southern locations about mid to late March. And I always check and see what the weather guessers are saying for the week that I might ship when it comes to the more northern locations, because sometimes it's still frozen solid. So if it's going to be sub-zero temps, I'm not shipping to you people in the frozen white north. I don't want to ship you trees when it's completely frozen solid. I wait until it warms up a bit, so no worries about that. If you get your trees and the ground is too frozen, keep them moist and in the fridge, and they'll be just fine. Basically, everything boils down to what the weather is doing. If it's a drawn-out winter, everyone is getting trees later. If it's a mild winter, you might get trees earlier. This all depends on the wholesale growers that are supplying my thousands of trees and when they can dig. Because if it's frozen up there, they can't dig it. So they have to wait until it thaws a little bit so they can dig. Third question, what should I do with my trees when they come in the mail? 
I recommend you open them up immediately, rinse them off completely top to bottom, keep the roots wet, and if you're not able to plant them right away, you should put the roots into moist potting mix. Water them thoroughly and allow the water to drain and put the pot and all of that, basically take the bare root trees, put them in the pot, fill it up with soil, water it, maybe put a little bit more soil, keep watering it until it's all full and the roots are kept moist. The roots must be kept moist all the time. You cannot let these roots dry out or the trees will die. Um, if you do that, let it drain and put that whole thing, the pot with however many trees you ordered, in a trash bag. Tie it up at the top. Keep everything closed up in plastic. Put that whole bag potted mess of trees in the fridge or in your garage where it'll stay cold but not frozen. They should be fine. If you're able to, the day you get them, Take them out of the bag and put them directly in the ground. That is best because I inoculate the roots with a mycorrhizal blend. So the best thing is to get them directly in the ground if you can. If you can't, then you could put them directly into some potting mix. Um, but I just tell people uh, to rinse them off, especially the stems, just in case um, USPS took a little while getting it to you. Sometimes they can start to develop a little bit of mold and rinsing it off can get them back healthier and happier quicker. Fourth question, how much should I expect my fodder trees to grow in 2023? Well, the Ferguson crew here planted 800 fodder trees, just fodder trees, this past spring to grow for propagation. So I don't have to buy from the wholesalers anymore. Um, we should be able to turn out thousands and thousands of trees with those 800 uh, intended for propagation. We fertilized and watered them. We could have done a better job, but it was a hard summer, and I was gone a lot consulting. Things just don't get done as well when I'm not here, and that's understandable. But I'm trying to give you an idea. Like, this was not optimal, and my trees, on average, hit 8 foot tall, with the tallest probably in the 12 to 16 foot range. The ones that didn't get watered enough stayed the same size as when they went in the ground. Uh, when I get out there with this next cold snap, I'm going to be measuring so I can get people some pictures and video and actual clear measurements on how much these trees grew in their first year. I'm expecting to get about a dozen new trees out of each tree that grew well in cuttings. And next year, I should be getting about 120 new trees out of each tree in propagation material minimum. The hybrid willow and the poplars get about 100% take on rooting from bare cuttings, and the white mulberry about 50 to 80% take on rooting. So it doesn't take much to grow an army of trees once you get them in the ground. If you haven't ordered yet, they're going fast, and I expect to be sold out in about a week, if not sooner. Could take a little bit longer, just depends on how people are ordering. Uh, you can get them while they're still available over at rareplantstore.com. And don't forget, if you want to get in on the uh, waiting list for consulting, shoot me an email to Nick Ferguson at rareplant. Uh, sorry, Nick Ferguson at homegrownliberty.com. Uh, I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. So good stuff from Nick, and I'll have a link where you can order uh, his plants uh, in the show notes for you today. And it's Definitely an outstanding uh, deal that he offers. He he does uh, a great job on the shipping as well. And you know, as he said, he ships to people based on where they are in the weather. 
and he does a great job on that. And if you might think, I really want my plants now. If he says it's not time, it's not time. That's why we have him on the expert panel. He kind of knows what he's talking about. Uh, I'll also say one more little pitch for Nick. If you are considering doing stuff to your homestead in the permaculture, ag, uh, regenerative agricultural way, uh, the, the money you will pay him as a consultant across the time that you run that system and the decisions that you make, he will pay for himself ten times over at least. He, I know one person in particular that said it, the, the, the one mistake that was prevented would have cost me $20,000 that I might as well have set on fire and thrown away. So definitely, if he's going to be in your neck of the woods and you can pick him up as a consultant, he is totally worth the money. Uh, with that, let's talk to John Pugliano about investing and a coming recession. And let's just say a dose of freaking reality. John, here we go. Hello, TSP. Happy New Year. We're going to start off the new year with a throwback question, and then I want to use that as a springboard to cover what is pretty much on everybody's mind, and that's a pending recession in 2023. Well, as far as the throwback question, it comes from Tom. The reason I call it a throwback question is because this is reminiscent of, you know, something we had heard a quarter of a century ago with the Y2K hysteria. This is Tom's question. What steps would you recommend taking to someone who has only limited experience investing in ETFs and wants to take more self-custodialship of their actual paper stock certificates or whatever physical equivalent there may be, so that in the event of an extended power outage or failure of the Internet, it would be possible to reassert one's ownership of the stocks after the event? Well, Tom, like I say, I haven't heard a question like this for many decades. All stock ownership has gone to an electronic format, and that even includes, uh, you know, some of the older traditional investments like government treasuries. You know, that's all electronic as well. And you can still certainly request a paper stock certificate, and you do that by going back to the individual company that issued the shares. For example, if you own shares of ExxonMobil, you would go directly back to ExxonMobil. In the case of ETFs, you know, I never really thought about it, but I think it would work the same way. You just go back to Vanguard, and I assume legally if you requested it, they would have to provide you some type of paper certificate. Now, while that may give you a sense of comfort, the major disadvantage to that is that you would then be unable to quickly trade your shares like you can electronically, which is, you know, the reason we do it. You would have to physically either mail in or take those shares into a broker, pay an extra fee, and have everything processed manually. I got to tell you, Tom, I've been investing for over 38 years. I have never physically ever had possession of a stock certificate of anything that I had ever bought or sold. And the limited times that I've even ever handled them as, at all was in the case of a client who maybe had, you know, like an old grandmother or grandfather that passed away and they inherited them. And these things, you know, trust me, they were much more of an inconvenience than an advantage. So in terms of what you would do as an individual investor, just simply saving a PDF file of your most recent monthly statement for Vanguard, in my opinion, would be more than enough to protect you in the event of any type of claim you may have on your investments with Vanguard. And the reason I really have no concern for the question you're asking is that, Tom, in all honesty, and this is like many things that people worry and obsess about, 
if we went to a grid down situation or some kind of global outage of the internet where it so disrupted things that all of our stock ownership would be in question, well, if something like that happened, if it was that severe and that drastic, then we would all have so many other things to worry about, like the immediate need for water and food and shelter, that the amount of money that we had in the stock market would really be of little concern. So rather than focusing on things that are very unlikely to happen and things that are totally outside of our own control and things that if they did happen, we couldn't do anything about anyways, I'd encourage you to worry about things that are more at hand. And one of those things is a pending recession for 2023. Now, I know a lot of people are debating how drastic and how severe this recession is going to be. And, you know, I really don't care. We have enough evidence now from leading economic indicators, and we've had these since about September of October, to know there's a high degree of probability, and I want to stress high degree of probability, that there will be a recession in 2023. The reason a pending recession is so important is because it will affect you not only in terms of money you may have invested in the stock market, but it's also likely to impact your employment situation. And the reason I mention that it's not so important to me as to whether this is a shallow recession or a deep recession, the reason I don't really care about that is because the precautionary things that you can do to mitigate the effects on your life are the same one way or the other. And so some things that you could be doing right now is evaluating your stock portfolio or whatever your investments might be and making sure that you're protecting your principal. Because if we do go into a recession, you know, whether it's a run-of-the-mill recession or if it's a really deep one, then from levels where the market is right now, you could see your principal drop from anywhere from 15 to 50%. And so evaluate what you're invested in and do your best to protect your principal. The easiest way for most people to do that is to simply liquidate your positions and let the money be parked in either a money market fund or if that's not available to you, a stable value fund. The other thing that it's critical that you do is that at work, you want to make like your asbestos. And what I mean by that is you want to make yourself fireproof. You want to be a model employee. You want to be so valuable to your company and so productive that if we go into a recession and they start firing and laying people off, that you're the last one that they let go. And in being that model employee, you want to make sure that you're staying up to date and you're improving all your marketable skills so that in the event that if you did get fired or laid off, you would quickly be able to go to a competitor and do the same or a similar job. Or even better yet, you'd be able to take advantage of the recession and start your own company. Another thing that's totally and 100% in your control, and this is what you should be doing to prepare for a recession, is making sure that you've not only put aside some emergency savings, we're talking three months, six months, maybe even a year's worth of living expenses in a safe FDIC-insured bank account where you have no risk of losing it, and not only have that emergency fund for savings, but also look at your living expenses, and in particular, your discretionary expenses, and figure out ways that you can tighten your belt and take some slack out of your spending. Because the less money you need to live off of means the less money you not only have to earn, but also the less money that you have to have saved in your emergency fund. All these things that I've just talked about 
are totally 100% in your sphere of influence and something that you have direct control over. That is the advice that, Tom, I'd give to you and everybody else in the audience. Because, again, I want to emphasize all the leading economic indicators are flashing the warning signal that a recession is likely right around the corner. So you've been warned. Plan for it accordingly. And, hey, on that rosy news, again, Happy New Year to everybody. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. Well, I completely agree with John on that, and and I think that people really need to back away from the precipice of jumping off of the cliff with hysteria, and at the same time, except much as I discussed on Monday's show, uh, there is a massive recession coming. But a massive recession doesn't exist. The Internet's going away for five years, in which case the stock, here's the big thing. Let's say you were right. And let's say that the internet went down for like five years or whatever, you know, not a day or two. And you had some shares in just about any company out there. They're probably going to be worthless anyway. You're talking about a complete meat grinder to everything. And probably half the population is dead. Right? we got other problems if that happens. I don't see that happening. Um society knows how to do the things that we do now. Now, I'm not saying some really bad stuff can't happen in specific regions and things like that, and you could be in one of them, but this idea that somehow having a piece of paper in a box will matter in that scenario is just not realistic. And I don't want anybody to under-prepare or be unprepared mentally, emotionally, spiritually for the coming recession but also, again, I'll point out fortunes were made in the middle of the Great Depression. Moving on, let's hear from Nicole on how to go through a remodel without wanting to shoot yourself in the head. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with a question from Brian. Brian asks me, how do you remodel a bathroom without driving yourself crazy? Now, he meant this question as a joke, I think, because I am in the middle of a bathroom remodel that started with a very narrow scope and has led to replacing floor joists and reframing a wall and some other things like that. But it's a pretty good question, and I'm going to expand it from how to remodel a bathroom without driving your crazy, yourself crazy to how to remodel anything without driving yourself crazy. In the world of homes that we buy that have been built by somebody else, and we don't know exactly what they did, and we don't know exactly how long they've been around, or we do, but they've been around long enough that we are at the point where we want to remodel then. The biggest thing about any remodel is expect the unexpected. So if, for example, you think, I'm just going to go in and remodel this kitchen, we're going to pull the cabinets out, maybe patch a few holes here and there that we got in the walls, maybe pull off some wallpaper, paint it, throw brand new cabinets back in and, and a new countertop and be done with it. That'll take about a week. And you don't go in having done a deeper analysis. You, you may end up in a situation where you're super frustrated. But if instead of doing what I just said, you prepare for the worst from the beginning, it can be really helpful. Now, if you haven't done much carpentry or building, a great idea is to sit down with a builder and say, okay, here's what I plan to do in my kitchen or wherever. And what could go horribly wrong? And they will often have enough experience in other such remodels to say, well, you might find dry rot. 
You may find that your electrical wiring is bad. You may find that you need to redo your plumbing and you have a cement floor and you need to chip that away before you can access the pipes, right? And when they tell you all of these horror stories, rather than become frightened, ask more questions. Ask, okay, what would it take to fix that? How much should I put aside to fix that? And once you have a worst case scenario, you will have an idea of how much this project could cost you once you get into it. And you have an idea of how the timeline might go from one week to five weeks. And then you also have an idea of what sorts of professionals you may need to bring in if you're doing a DIY project, but some of the stuff that might happen is beyond your skill set. And you you can have had conversations with people or recommendations of possible contractors to work with if you come into, up against a situation where, for example, you need electrical wiring rerun and you're not prepared to do that. If you do that all in advance before you cut into anything or start anything, then you know how to set up the project so that you can handle anything that comes up. It's much like preparing your pantry for the year ahead, right? You just you think about what, what might I need in my pantry what sort of medical supplies would I like to have on hand? You make a list, you go get them. Well, in this case, you don't have to go get them. You just have to have enough capital and plans for what will happen if the timeline of your project changes from one week to five weeks so that you're able to gracefully navigate when something comes up like a rotten floor joist or needing to redo plumbing. And then you can make a much more reasoned decision about how quickly and who is going to address the problem that you find. Second, schedule a remodel when you can handle scope creep. Do not plan a one-week kitchen redo one week before Thanksgiving when you're going to have 20 people over. Because if you do run into an issue, then you also are responsible for doing something that's kitchen heavy right before Thanksgiving, right? Likewise, if you're at a point in the year where you tend to be your busiest, that's not the best time to rip into a bathroom. So scheduling makes a big difference in how you navigate these sorts of projects gracefully or not gracefully. Number three, isolate the project from the rest of your house as best you can. By which I mean this, construction is terrible, messy work. Things get tracked in, dust is in the air, sawdust is everywhere. Things smell bad. Water ends up places you don't want it. There's all sorts of yuck that happens with construction. It's terribly dirty. And if you can hang plastic walls, board off half your house, or find other ways to isolate the mess, you're in a much better position just from a living with it standpoint during the project than if it's just all open air and everything's tracked everywhere. I'm actually currently in the middle of a construction project where I can't isolate it completely. We have to walk from the door to the room and it doesn't make sense to take shoes on and off in and out when we're, you know, measuring subfloor and stuff and putting that in. So the way I'm isolating mine is I have a door that closes to the room and I haven't taken it off. So it closes when we're not working on a project so that things, you know, the extra dust in there doesn't come out in the house. And then every day I get to clean <laughs> the floor because for me, having a whole bunch of sawdust and debris and mud and all the stuff that gets tracked in on my hardwood floors 
is distressing if I have to walk through it barefoot in the middle of the night to go pee, basically. So I find that's a twofold thing for isolation for me for this project. One is I isolate the room as best I can. And two, I have time allocated in my schedule to clean up every day. And I close the project down at a certain time every day so that I am cleaning up at a time when I want to be and not super late at night. And that has made a huge difference here. Now, if I had carpet, what I would have done is I would have installed some sort of plastic or heavy tarp barrier with then some of that black um, tar paper or something that that people could walk in and out of so that all of that debris does not end up in my carpet. I'm a person who does not allow carpet in her life, so that's not an issue. So that's just, I'm throwing that out there in case you are going to do a project and you have carpet, you really need to protect that carpet as best you can because as we know, once things get in carpets, no matter how much we clean them, things kind of stay in carpets. And then number four, when needed, before the project starts, build your backup plan. What do I mean by that? There are some things that you need access to in your home that you want to have a backup for in case there is scope creep and your timeline shifts from a couple of days to a couple of weeks to a couple of months. Those things are primarily for me, bathrooms and kitchens. If I'm doing a kitchen remodel, for example, I tend to want to do that in the summer so that I can set up a kitchen outside that I can use for just cooking because I don't like to eat out all the time and I don't want to just microwave meals. I also will pre-cook meals that can be heated easily in that situation and I tend to gravitate towards paper plates. So I have a backup plan or an alternative universe I can use while my kitchen's out of order. Likewise with a bathroom remodel, which I'm in the middle of right now, and it started really small scope and has turned into a complete gutting of the room. I made sure my second bathroom, which had also required repair in the last two years, was completely redone before I started this project. That means that I'm not running outside to the outhouse in the middle of the night. Now, if you're in a home with just one bathroom and you need to do the bathroom, you may want to make sure you have a porta potty scheduled for a month just in case. Or you may want to build yourself a composting system. Whatever it's going to take to have a backup plan, if that then means if the project ends up taking longer than you expect, you have a backup, you have an alternative. It's a whole lot more comfortable. When you're comfortable, you're more mentally accurate or mentally sharp and you can make better decisions, better long-term decisions. And at the end of the day, when you get into a remodel of any type, you want to be positioned to make good long-term decisions if you run into a problem. So Brian, in answer to your question, the way to remodel anything, I think first and foremost, is to be prepared for a lot more than you expected so that when things come up, because we all know they will, you're ready to handle it for the long term and make whatever you're remodeling better for yourself and your family. Hope this advice helps y'all. Happy New Year. And if you are interested in further honing your, your resilience mindset, I wanted to mention that Self-Reliance Festival 2023 dates are chosen. And our next one will be March 25th and 26th. You can get more information on that at selfreliancefestival.com. That is a two-day event in Camden, Tennessee that is like a big old prepper jam session, but we bring two elements together. One, from the homesteading slash building a resilient lifestyle standpoint, 
two from the more tactical awareness sort of medical preparedness standpoint we bring those two worlds together because we can all learn from each other and it's a superb event friday before that event we also have bear independent from refuge medical doing their responder one training that's an add-on you can grab that's all over at selfreliancefestival.com make it a great week so i'm going to give a very very short follow-up on remodeling well, this is my advice with remodeling. Whether you're doing it yourself, doing part of it yourself, hiring a contractor to do the whole thing, even with a bid, whatever the number is that you budget, you need at least, in my opinion, about a 15% reserve budget. And if you're really in doubt, and it's not something that's critical and needs to be done, don't. Here's an example. I, I had a plan to really open up my house when you come into my dining room uh there's a, a hallway that goes down to where there's two bedrooms one of which is my office one of which is my wife's office and a bathroom and that wall also on the other side of it is where the kitchen is you're standing in a dining room to your right is the living room and i thought if we took that wall down then we would have like this really great open concept uh, kitchen and kind of like a mega kitchen and dining room in one and then it would open up straight over into the, the living room area and it would look so much better and it would well there's this drop down of about a foot and I know that inside there is H an HVAC uh, tube bringing to a vent and we have no idea what else is in there and when I considered doing the remodel of the kitchen, I thought about blowing it out and doing everything. And I had two different contractors with the job, and both of them said, I really won't know what I can do, if I can do it, whatever, until we open that thing. And then we looked at some other ways of doing the job, which is what we decided to do, and decided, yeah, I don't really want to go into that. Because you get into a position now where, like, well, what do we do? And I, I really think there's uh, tubes up there that are too big to fit in the floor, and that's why the house was put in the way that it was in the first place. So I just decided, nope. And it, the older the house, mine was built in 78. The older the house, the more true this is. When you start pulling stuff apart in a house that's built in the 40s or earlier, God knows what you're going to find. So think before you act and have have some extra powder for additional reloads. All right. All right. Let's move on. So I want to talk about something today that it shouldn't piss people off, but it probably is going to. I want to talk about DeMar Hamilton. If you don't know who DeMar Hamilton is, maybe you're better off right now. DeMar Hamilton, I believe his position was a safety, or is a safety because he's not dead, uh, for the Buffalo Bills. He made a hit on a ball carrier in the first quarter, I believe, of the Buffalo-Cincinnati game. I think it was Monday night. And the two players collided. It didn't look like that hard of a hit. DeMar got up. I could tell by watching the tape, when he got up, there was already something really wrong. You can't see his face. He's wearing a helmet and all. And he was only up for about a second, and then he collapsed onto the field. He went into um, uh, basically ventricle fibrillation, like his heart was just quivering. They gave him CPR. They used a defibrillator to shock his heart back into rhythm, put him into an ambulance, rushed him to a hospital. He was in ICU for several days, and apparently yesterday he regained consciousness. He's breathing on his own. 
He's squeezing people's hands. He's talking. And it looks like he will make a recovery. Now, I'm not going to say a full recovery because this is a very serious thing. Um, now, <clears throat> immediately, the people that say that all these athletes, and I would say the people, some of the biggest voices against the COVID vaccine started shrieking, this is because of the vaccine. All right. Now, I'm going to tell you before I go into my view of this right now, where I was in my head when I first heard about it. I was sitting on the couch. My wife was watching some show that I'm not that interested in. So I was reading the book that I'm reading this week, uh, 1491, which is about the Americas before Columbus. That's where I was at in, in my head intellectually. And she checks her phone in between commercials and shit like that. So she's like, a, a, a player in the NFL just collapsed on the field. My immediate thought was, oh, the vac strikes again. The clot shot strikes again. I looked it up, I watched the play, I saw the hit, and my first thought after seeing the hit and the way this went down was this looks like something called commotio cortis. And I know that's the explanation that the mainstream media is giving. And I know that you shouldn't trust the mainstream media. And I know that's probably the explanation that government would sanction, and I know that we shouldn't trust government. I trust government and the mainstream media, zero. Absolutely zero percent. I have I, they get no trust. Just because I don't trust a person, though, doesn't mean a thing that they're saying is wrong. Here's why I feel that that that's what most likely, not definitely, most likely occurred. When I was a junior in high school, I was at a high school football game. It was not a game I was playing in. A player got hit, albeit a little bit harder than this hit looked. It was a very similar type of impact. It didn't look like, like it's something you see happen all the time. The kid hit the ground. He got up about halfway, fell over, and this young man died. He was a senior in high school, like 17 years old, and he died on the field. They, had, they did not have the awareness of this issue at the time. Okay, Now, does that mean it is definitely the case that DeMar... Uh, suffered that injury, and that is why he collapsed. No. However, and this is this is the crux of this, the people that are shrieking and yelling, it's the claw shot, it's the claw shot, you sound like a bunch of dumbasses, and you're hurting our side of this issue with your stupidity. And it is stupidity. I put out yesterday that the good news is, is that DeMar is you know coming around, he seems like he's going to make a recovery, at some level he's going to be okay, and I had my own folks that follow me on social media telling me I'm an idiot if I believe that he's even alive. He's obviously dead and they're lying about it. Okay, this dude is a safety for the freaking Buffalo Bills. All right? And not the Buffalo Bills of the 1970s that sucked. Right? The Buffalo Bills that have a really good chance of going to the Super Bowl this year. People are not going to not pay attention. And they're going to notice that they put a fake Damar Hamilton back, in, Hamlin back into the lineup. Okay? Or if he shows up to speak and he can't play, they're going to notice it's not him. This is not the kind of thing that you orchestrate a phony double of or something like that. Okay, it isn't. I have people say, oh man, I'm really worried for everybody who got the shot because of this. You should have been worried for everybody who got the shot for all the shit that's happened between the beginning of the shot and now. There's, it's something like more players collapsed in the last three years on the field of various sports with soccer for some reason being the major one maybe because they're 
maybe they're pushing more injections as far as boosters and follow-ups in the, in the soccer leagues, especially in Europe, the UK, because you would think they would, like more in the last three years than in the previous two decades combined, or it's about the same number. There's a case to be made here. There absolutely is. But what happens is when there's a high-profile issue, all the people that are making their, making their name on it grab it and use it to get themselves onto TV news shows and things like that. And I was very disappointed in the way a person I have extreme respect for handled this as soon as it happened. And I'm talking about Dr. Peter McCullough. Peter McCullough jumped all over this, and with his reputation, his claim that that's probably what happened becomes evidence for all the loons that it is what happened. An opinion becomes evidence when the person issuing the opinion has enough clout. It's irresponsible. It's irresponsible as shit. I am very careful to not do this, and I am a, a mouse fart in influence compared to Dr. McCullough. Right. So this was an irresponsible thing for him to do. And making the case for how irresponsible it was, it appears to me that he coordinated with Steve Kirsch, who's a very well-known writer on Substack, who I've also had a tremendous amount of respect for. And they pushed this thing as like, man, this is like almost 100% that that's what this is. They apparently used that leverage, and, and McCullough got on Tucker Carlson the next evening. He then was incredibly responsible on the Tucker Carlson show, not making the case at all that this is probably what happened with Hamlin. He did say that the, the NFL and the family owes it to us to let us know his vaccination status, and this should be looked into. I, I think that's reasonable. And he and Tucker together basically made the case that I just gave you that there's, there's more in the last you know, basically two and a half years of this happening than the last 20 years. And that's a completely legitimate case. So it was like I was irresponsible to get the opportunity to bring out the responsible opinion. But the damage has been done. And this is what you need to understand if you're on the side of, we know it's a clot shot, like a retard. You don't know anything. I don't know. I'm not claiming that it is what I say it is. And I'm not saying it's not the clot shot. I know I don't know. We all saw the same tape. That is the only evidence you have. You have no idea what DeMar Hamlin's vaccination status is. I do, however, have an idea what the vaccination status of the average NFL player is. And it is that they have, were vaccinated during the big push and everybody bought into it. Only half-ish were boosted once, and most of them have never had an injection again. So there's a huge probability that Mr. Hamlin got a vaccination at the very beginning and never again. And that would put even me, who is skeptical of the clot shot, and I call it the clot shot, to say, yeah, now, if he had received all his boosters and won that morning, I'm a little bit more leaning toward this alternative theory. But in the end, this happens. And I need you to think about another thing. I just told you that there's more people that have collapsed since the beginning, at professional athletes have collapsed since the beginning of the clot shot till now than the last 20 years. What does that mean, though? That means when there was no clot shot, this does occasionally happen. Something like this occasionally happens.
This is a known thing that occurs. And the best thing you can do in a situation like this is shut the hell up until you know something. And if you're going to talk about it, you talk about it with probabilities. We need to look into it. It's a thing. Here's this other thing that clearly some portion of this can be attributed. But to jump all over this, to use this as conclusive proof, you look like an idiot And I'm going to tell you the reason it makes you an idiot if you're doing this, especially if you have clout, especially if you have sway, especially if you can influence, it makes you an idiot. There are two primary factions of people on this issue. There are people like us, and I say us if you're like me, I'm including you as us, and if you're not like me, then I don't, that basically think the vaccine does more harm than good for the vast majority of people, and we will never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, never, ever, never, ever get the vaccine. Period. And it would take moving a mountain to change our opinion. There are the other group that's about the same size. They are in the other side. If they showed 20 people get in line, get the vaccine, 10 of them died, they would still go get their booster shot. And you're not moving their opinion either. They cannot think for themselves. They are the the epitome of Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. The battle, like in all of these quests for you know opinion, election, etc., is always for the people in the middle sitting on the fence. Over the last year, a lot of these people on the fence have really started leaning over to our side of the debate. Because the preponderance of the evidence leads to our side of the fence. All this did was take a shitload of them and shove them right off the fence back to the other side, and now they're right they're fence adjacent, and they're being courted by the other side. It's your civic duty. If you loved your fellow man, all that bullshit that we know is a lie. The CDC itself says right now, if you've had COVID and you've had the vaccine, you have about the same level of immunity and you should be treated the same. The CDC says that, not me. But the zombies don't care. Well, get your vaccine. We know if it doesn't prevent infection, even if they're right when they say it reduces severity, which I don't believe, by the way, But even if they were right, that it doesn't reduce spread because you reduce spread through the reduction of infection. We do have vaccines in the past. They did work. And the reason they stopped spread is because they also did what? They prevented infection. They didn't make the disease less severe in the individual who was vaccinated. But now, all of this logic to a huge portion of people that were beginning to wake up and think about pulling the freaking matrix plug out of the back of their head, they just went back to sleep in their pods, and you're alone. And you know what we call all of this? We call this controlled opposition. And not every person that's part of controlled opposition is aware of it. Many are just money money seekers. Many are attention seekers. And many are well-intentioned. And I'm going to put Peter McCullough, for all the good he's done, right? I'm going to put him in the realm of well-intentioned. I'm not shitting all over the guy. Well-intentioned. But wrong to do it the way that it was done because it harms the very thing he's trying to accomplish. And controlled opposition can be handled a variety of ways. One, you can directly have a person who's controlled opposition. Uh, I.e., they're on the payroll, you say what we, we tell you to say when we tell you to say it. The other way, and the, the more effective way, is to take the publicity attention seeker or the well-intentioned person with a big following 
and feed them little bits of information over time and build their case until they make a tactical error and then you pounce on them and they don't even know you did it to them. And this comes to the there's two philosophies of governance for a hegemonic state. And there's only two. And I'm talking macro, not there's tons of micro, but there's two macro philosophies. One is rule through division. Make the pitchfork people fight with the torch people so they don't kill you. That's one form of hegemonic rule. The other form of hegemonic rule is ideological unity. And you can see it in the disparity between the two. And one is more of a velvet glove totalitarianism. And another one is we'll throw you in a prison and let you starve to death totalitarianism. That's the unity one. That's how you create unity. And the divisive one is what we do in the United States. Where despite all the people thrown into prison in China, which is a unity totalitarian state, an ideological, unitarian, uh, uh, tyrannical state, we have more people in prison than they do. It's wild when you think about they have like a billion and a half people and we have like 330 million people. But that is the goal, to control you through division. And we need to think about that because historically speaking... When two empires collide, the ones that have ruled through tyrannical unity versus tyrannical division tend to win. They tend to win. Empires that are based on tyrannical unity tend to outlast ones that are based on tyrannical division. Just look at China. How long has China existed as a culture? And then... Tell me about the Romans, and I don't mean the people that live in the city. Tell me about the Greeks. Tell me about the Spartans. Tell me about all the great civilizations of the West that no longer exist. And then tell me about the Chinese. Tyrannical rule by division works well for a time, and it actually works better for a time, but eventually when empires collide, a unified society will fight harder for their government mistake than a divided one. And in the course of human history, every tyrant, every state, every deep state, if you think the deep state is a new invention, you have not read a history book. No matter what approach was taken, the tyrants and the people doing it believed that they could outwit their adversaries and that what they were doing would work. Sometimes with a divisive society like we have, it works and you actually overpower the competing uh, empire. Sometimes it works for a time of relative peace. Sometimes eventually the, fo the foment of civil war pushes your people until they kill each other and you end up dead in the middle. And the same thing happens with tyrannical societies. You have a unified group that eventually flips their shit and they turn on the state. Either way, the state collapses and has to be reformulated. And you think, well, we're just talking about a, a clot shot, Jack, and a football player, a sports ball player. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the circuses and bread and circuses, and the circus is a reflection of the underlying tone of the apparatus and control. Stop jumping to conclusions, stop making definitive statements about shit you do not know, start stating your opinion is an opinion, 
And when you have an excellent case, don't take a high-profile example that's iffy and use it to make it. Make your case from all the data that you already have. That would be logical thinking. If you're mad at me now, you're not mad at me. You're mad at logic because you don't like it. You're pissed off because I've disrupted your perception and confirmation bias. I haven't even made the case this definitively is not due to the vaccine. I haven't. I defy you to take... I'm at 19 minutes and 49 seconds into my answer rant. Take anything from this point, 19 minutes, 50 seconds back, and show me where I made the definitive case of that. And you can't, but you're still mad. Why? Because all I said is it seems more probable based on what we know, which is actually very little. And I've had people say, well, it's on them to prove everything now. No, it's not. You're making the case that is the exception to the preponderance of evidence that we have available. It's up to you to prove it. The person that makes the more extraordinary claim has the burden of proof. That's, that's been the case in science and medicine and everything up until quite recently in human history. About the last 100 years, we have slowly had an incremental change of that to the point of the, 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 the person making the, the claim of authority has no burden of proof no matter what the claim is. And we have assigned authority to bodies that should not have it. Science is not an authority. It's an error-detecting process. It should be questioned at all times. It should be pulled apart at all times. Every idea should be, idea should be viciously attacked. Not with just rhetoric and everybody knows and dogma, but viciously attacked and pulled at to see if it stands up to a thing. And if it does, it does. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. No matter how inconvenient or uncomfortable the fact that it doesn't stand up is. Anyway, I had to speak out on that. I didn't want to do it um, during the week because, one, we didn't know what we know now. Dude's not going to die because I thought it was a very high chance that he was brain dead. I really did. Very high probability. I didn't think he was going to recover. Um, so by waiting when something has unknowns in it, you know, just like the shooting in Texas that happened, and I, Yvalde, and I just kept my mouth shut for a week until, because, like, the story changed, like, 18 times before I actually spoke on it. So, you know, it is better to be silent and thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt, because then the actual information comes out and you look stupid. No? Yeah. Uh, now... I'm just going to also say the other reason I didn't talk about this is because I do all my live streams and I believe that YouTube would have thrown me back in the clink and I'm one more strike away from like losing my account again, right? So I, I, I don't want that to happen. So I take Fridays or days that I just don't live stream to talk about this particular issue because while many other platforms have stopped this nonsense and stopped censoring everything about it, uh, YouTube has, has not. YouTube Google has not. Anyway, with that, I am done for the day. I want to thank all of you for tuning in this week. I do want to remind you again uh, that the, uh, the event going on in Bastrop, Greater Reset 4, I'll be speaking there. You can come meet me, Mark Moss, John Bush, a lot of other really cool people, J.P. Sears uh, Zuby from Zuby Music and Zuby's Podcast. Uh, just an awesome lineup. You can find links in today's show notes and come check us out. You can also help us out just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z 
tspaz.com. If I didn't piss you off too much, the next time you're going to shop online, go to tspaz.com before you do. Now, my item of the day today is something I haven't brought around in a while, and I was like, I, I need to talk about this again. This is one of my cooking cheat codes. I have certain things. I brought you pink peppercorns earlier this week. I love those. This is another one of my, my cheat codes. I mean, it's, it's something that's so easy to use, and it just changes food in a way that makes people go, wow, what, what is that? It's Walker's Wood traditional Jamaican jerk seasoning. comes in a jar. You rub it on anything. But, I mean, traditionally chicken is one of the big ones. That's why I'm going to give you a recipe and procedure for here in a second. Uh, but I do it with shrimp uh, and chicken are like my two go-tos with it. But I ha I've done it with pork, too. Jerk pork is actually really delicious. But here's, here's a, a way to keep fully keto. And get the rice experience with, with using this. And you can get the hot or the mild, right? Uh, and the mild is still pretty spicy. But my number one cut for this, and just saying chicken, is, is thighs. So you get your chicken thighs. And kind of lift up the skin and rub this on both sides of the chicken thigh. Under the skin, on top of the skin, and on the back side. Then take this and bake it at a relatively low temperature, say 325 until it's pretty much done, right, to where you would be comfortable eating it, and you and do this in a pan, a deeper, like, baking pan. I like to use kind of one of the throwaway aluminum pans, so if it doesn't clean up easily, you throw it away. Uh, or line a, a deep oven pan with, uh, with foil, or use something like a glass or ceramic where you're going to have no problem cleaning it up, whatever you want to do. And then remove it from the oven, take the chicken, and set it aside, take it out of the pan, And let it cool all the way down to like room temperature. Okay? Then finish it on a grill, a griddle, put a little char on it in a frying pan if you don't want to go outside because it's too cold or whatever. And reserve the liquid, the chicken fat, the chicken juice, and the seasoning that came out of it. Now do up some cauliflower rice. Okay? Make some cauliflower rice however you do it. I like to, I like to fry it with butter and whatever other seasonings I want to add to it. Uh, here I might reinforce the Jamaican seasoning by, oh, I don't know, just putting a couple tablespoons along with some salt of that juice into the rice when I fry it. But with cauliflower rice to me, you need to cook most of the moisture out of it and that cauliflower stink out of it. Now take your rice, put it on your plate, put a couple pieces of the charred chicken on top of the rice, and put a big ladle of the juice that goes into the rice and gets sucked into the rice with that. It would be one of the best things you ever eat. It's an incredibly cheap meal to make. It is really easy to do. Check it out. Again, it's called Walker's Wood Traditional Jamaican Jerk Seasoning. I do appreciate when you buy things online, you go through tspaz.com. However, I will tell you this is very common at a lot of grocery stores. So this is one also just to kind of put in your head, and if you happen to be out at a grocery store and get a better deal or whatever, buy it there. This is one of those things that belongs in your cupboard because of what it's made out of. It'll damn near last forever, and it just elevates food. Somebody asked me, actually two people asked me this week, do I have a cooking show for beginnings? I've done <coughs> quite a few cooking shows, but I think it'd be interesting maybe to take a shot at doing a show that's like, basic techniques and a few recipes for people that really aren't comfortable cooking at all. They're like, I can boil water and make macaroni, and that's about it. There's real simple things to do to elevate your cooking, and one is understanding ingredients like, you, you know, you can make your own jerk seasoning. To me, it's just so easy to use this. It's not like I cook jerk food, uh, you know, even though I'm the jerk, right? I don't cook jerk chicken twice a week or something. Then I would probably roll my own. 
for somebody that's going to make it like once a month, this is just an amazing thing to yank off uh, of the shelf. But knowing how to use it, like I just told you, is kind of a big part of it. With that, I'm ready to wrap up. Also, in addition to doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, please remember that you can always support this show by becoming a member of the MSB. That's the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. 50 bucks a year, 18 cents an episode to support the show. And you can support us through podcasting 2.0 apps by sharing sats with us, either streaming or boosting. Easiest place I know to do that is at fountain.fm. With that, I will catch you after the weekend on Monday with a brand new Just Jack show. Bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you. Better way